The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, which I hope you do, uh, open them up to Isaiah uh, chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We're going to look to, I would say Isaiah 53 is my favorite chapter within the book of Isaiah. Uh, but this chapter this evening that we're going to look to, just the beginning of it, the first half, it w- would be close uh, behind uh, my, my favorite text within the book of Isaiah. It is a beautiful, beautiful passage. Um, most familiar to us would be verses 8 and 9, and we're going to begin there. And we often quote verses 8 and 9. We often hear these verses quoted, but seldom, myself included, do we rightly understand these verses in light of what they're actually referring to? And so I want to begin an introduction by reading just verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah chapter 55. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Most of you in here have heard that quoted. Most of you in here, even perhaps a majority of you in here, have memorized those verses. They are are powerful words about our sovereign God. And I have turned to these verses often in my life when things aren't working out like I think they ought to be working out. When, when times of uncertainty come, when things happen and you're wondering, you know, God, what are you doing in the midst of, of my life right now? It's not that I'm doubting God. I'm just doubting, like, what God is doing and, and wanting to trust Him in it, but struggling to trust Him in it with what I see in my life at times. And, and you, if you're honest, you've been there too. Some of you may be there tonight, and these are great, powerful words to remind us God's thoughts are above our thoughts, that, that God... And His ways are not our ways. He, he's a God that knows the end from the beginning. He's a God that's sovereignly working all things to a good, glorious end. Often I look to these verses in that light. And as I have studied this chapter afresh and anew, I have come to see these words speak to something even greater than just the general sovereignty of God in our lives. These These words actually speak to something even more beautiful than the comfort, even more bringing more comfort to us than the comfort we find and trusting the sovereignty of God generally in our lives. That word for, that begins in verse 8, for my thoughts, that's referring back to the verses that come before. And we should interpret these verses specifically in light of the verses that come before it. And when we do, what I hope you're going to see tonight is that these verses are, are such a comfort and such a really even call to us tonight to, to trust in God, to find, really to answer the invitation that God gives to us in verses 1 through 8. The sermon tonight is called The Great Invitation. In verses 1 through 7, what we're about to read, what we find is that God gives the greatest invitation that has ever been given. An invitation for Israel, His people, an invitation even that is quoted in the New Testament, many of these verses and and different places in the New Testament, that's an invitation for you 
and an invitation for me this evening. And his invitation is simple. It's an invitation to all sinners everywhere to come to God and to find the forgiveness of your sins. Let's read it. Verse 1, chapter 55 of the book of Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. And let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you, because the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. All of that is a messianic prophecy that there would come that greater seed of David who would rule and reign eternally, whose kingdom would endure forever. The nations of the world turning because of the mercies of David to the greater seed, the greater son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. So it continues, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he, the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. Return to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What is the greatest invitation that you have ever received? I actually thought a long time about that today, and I could not come up with anything good. I am just a boring person because I've only been invited to boring things. Uh, I can't say weddings are boring, but weddings are boring. And many of you have gotten an invitation to weddings, I am sure. Um, Some of you may have gotten a great invitation to some place of great privilege or great honor. I do not know. Maybe after the service you're going to come up and you're going to tell me about it, about this great invitation that you received and what an honor and what a privilege it was to go to this place or to meet that person or to be uh, bestowed this honor. And, And yet here I can say with the authority of God's word this evening, the greatest invitation you will ever receive, that you have ever received, is actually what we just read in the scripture. There is a God in heaven who invites you and who invites me, even this evening, to come to Him as unworthy sinners. To come to Him and actually receive from Him as we come in humility and and in recognition of our sin, to to come to Him in the brokenness even of our sin. What What we find from this God is not judgment, what we actually find from Him is forgiveness, is redemption. That that He is a God who extends this invitation to you tonight just as He extended it to Israel. It really is the grand message of the entire book of Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 18, and we see that the book of Isaiah actually began 
with this invitation. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, And God said before them, He said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So from the very beginning of the book, he's saying, come, come to me. Let, let us reason together. I am going to do a work for you by which you can be forgiven, by which you can be redeemed. What I want us to do tonight is we just walk back through these verses and think a little bit more deeply about them. I want you to consider how great an invitation this is that God has given us. Just how magnificent of a, an invitation is yours and is mine tonight given by this God of Israel, this God who is the one true living God. Notice first in verse 1 that this invitation is an invitation to come at no cost of your own. It's an invitation to come to God at no cost of your own, not, not costing you anything says ho a term of like attention listen up behold would be a a new testament equivalent everyone who thirsts everyone who is everyone who realizes in this life that things aren't exactly what they ought to be that all that this world offers isn't what we hope for it to be that the sickness, the pain, the death, the wrongness that we do and the wrongness that's done against us, the, the, the hate, the murder, the lies, the slander, all that we know that is wrong in this world that leaves us thirsting. He says, come all you who thirst and come to the waters. Come to the living waters that can truly satisfy, that can truly quench And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, if you've been with us on Wednesday night, you know Isaiah is writing in this latter portion of his prophecy to the captives who would be in Babylon someday, to the captives who were, it's after God let the Babylonians come in, they laid waste to Jerusalem, they Many died in this warfare as as the Babylonians were coming in and they were trying to defend the city. But ultimately, those that remained were were led captive back into the land of Babylon. They had no money. They were slaves in a foreign land as a conquered people. They, They had no houses. They had no estates. They had no livestock. They had very little of anything that was of any worth and was of any value whatsoever. And God calls out to them, and He promises to them, listen, you can come to Me even though you have nothing to offer Me. Even though you don't have the gold to rebuild the temple. Even though you don't have the the money to give to Me as offerings. Even though you don't have the, the livestock to sacrifice to Me as sacrifices. He says, come you who have nothing. you got nothing, but you come. And you can buy and eat. And buy wine and milk. Those are things of great value. Those are things that are costly. Without money and without price. Now it's not that those things were cheap. It's not even that those that milk and that wine was 
free in the sense of it didn't cost anything. No wine and milk were of great cost. It cost a lot. But the beauty of the message of the invitation here is that the host has paid the price in full. The host has paid the high, a price in full. The one who gives this invitation has paid the price completely and totally. So that any and all that are invited, even though you've got nothing to bring to the table, even though you've got nothing to purchase that makes you worthy of the things that you shall receive from him, he says, come with no money, and without money, without price, come and buy and eat of the great blessings that I will bestow upon you. Now, who paid this price? You've got to think back just two weeks ago, or a couple more weeks ago, because we had a few Wednesdays off, but the two chapters back, is Isaiah chapter 53. Beautiful passage that was a a very descriptive prophecy of what the Lord Jesus Christ would accomplish when He died upon Calvary, shedding His blood for your sins and my sins. Just to recap a little bit of that passage, again written 700 years before the time of Jesus, Verse 4 of chapter 53, speaking of what Jesus would do, He bore our griefs and He carried our sorrows. Verse 5 of that chapter, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. You go down to verse 6 at the end there. It says, The Lord laid on Him, the suffering servant, the, the Christ who would come, Jesus as we look back, the Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Go to verse 8, the end of verse 8. And it says it was for the transgression of God's people that He was stricken, that Jesus was, was crucified. At the end of verse 12 there, most of verse 12, it says He poured out His soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. And so as you think about this free offer of God's salvation, this free invitation to all who are unworthy, to all who have nothing to bring to the table, to all who have nothing to earn it or deserve it or impress God, don't think that that salvation, that that invitation comes cheap. It costs the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was purchased by the blood Jesus Christ shed at Calvary for you and for me. And God said prophetically beforehand, He will have the iniquities of God's people laid upon Him. By His wounds, His people will be healed. That Jesus died upon that cross to provide a means, a way in which sinful man can be reconciled to Holy God. If you're here tonight thinking, You've got something to bring to the table that can buy your place at at the the justification that only God can provide. I'm sorry, you can't. You can't earn it. You're a bankrupt sinner. But the beauty of this invitation is God has paid it all. God has paid it fully. Jesus purchased it for you and for me to make this invitation even possible. Jesus said it is finished upon the cross. What He meant by that is the price has been paid in full. The the invitation for salvation has been accomplished. We all have an invitation now to come freely and eat freely and drink freely. It's a great invitation 
because it's an invitation to come at no cost of our own. Uh, Notice secondly in verses 2 and 3. It's an invitation to find true, lasting, eternal satisfaction. To find in, in God what this world only mirrors falsely and gives false hopes that we can attain, that, that, that God offers to us in this invitation the only thing in life that can truly satisfy, the only thing in life that can really give contentment and give joy and give peace, no matter what life circumstances bear, to, to have a joy that is out of this world that is eternal and a hope that lasts beyond even the grave. It only comes in this this offer that God gives, this invitation that He gives. And so God points out the foolishness of seeking what only He can provide and all the things this world offers. He says in verse 2, Why do you spend money for what is not bread? It's saying there, Why do you spend so much money on the bread of deceit? On, on the things that really never bring what they promise, what you think they're going to give to you, all the, the pleasures of this life and things of this life that so many try to find lasting contentment and meaning and purpose in. Why, why do you spend so much money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Speaking of the futility of idolatry, A great saying about idols, and you say, what is an idol? An idol can be a little something that you're worshiping, as they did in many cultures in time past, a little statue of some sort, and and, and some would look at that and think that's foolishness, and yet we all have our idols in our life. It's just turned into bank accounts and job promotions and and the prestige of a uh, of a, a group of people and we all have your you have your idols that Satan uses to tempt you. You're, everybody's worshiping something, whether it's a football game or a, a pursuit of education or the, the bigger house, bigger boat, bigger truck. You, you name it. Everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's seeking in these idols. What only God can provide. It's been said idols are broken uh, cisterns. Like uh, think of your great thirst and seeing a cistern, a a container for water that you think will quench your thirst. And so you you pursue it. You climb the water tower to turn the tap on. And and, and those of those who actually reach the top of the tower and and finally get to turn the tap on, and, and, and what they find is is water doesn't come out. The, the water, the cistern was actually broken. The water, the, the water poured out a long, long time ago, and that's just an empty cistern that that promises things that cannot deliver. Like a mirage in the desert, where you you picture this great you know oasis that's not really there, and yet you pursue it and pursue it and pursue it because you think if I just if I get it, I'm going to have it. I'm going to finally arrive when I when I get it. And that is the pursuit of this world around us. And sadly, that's the pursuit of many believers even who, who get their, their get sidetracked in life. And they start pursuing the things of the world. And you think they'll satisfy. Some of you tonight even are chasing those things, thinking that if you only get them, then you're finally going to be happy. Then you're finally going to have the marriage that you've always wanted. Then you're finally going to have the, the family that you've always wanted. Then you're finally going to be living the life that you've always wanted if you just get a little bit more money or you get that job or you get that spouse or you get this or get... Uh, you put your faith in all of these, these idols, all of these things that ultimately cannot deliver what you think and hope they will deliver. 
As a matter of fact, some of the most miserable people on planet Earth, I believe, are those who actually get those things that they're pursuing and find that the cistern is empty. And you think about some of the richest people on this earth, and yet their lives are even more broken. <laughs> their, their misery is <laughs> even greater as they get the money and all the, the huge bank account and the house and everything that's supposed to make them happy. And what they find is that they're more miserable with it all than they were even in the pursuit of it all, because at least when they were pursuing it, they had some hope that when they got it, things would be better. And now that they've gotten it, they realize, what have I done with my whole life? This doesn't, this isn't it. I want to play a video of an interview from 2005. Some of you may know a guy by the name of Tom Brady. There's a 60 Minutes interview, just a short clip from that interview. Tom Brady had just won his third Super Bowl at the age of 27. And I don't think I've ever heard it put, expressed so open and honest about the emptiness of the vain things that we often pursue, that the world around us pursues in this life, thinking that it will be the one thing that satisfies, the one thing that gives us meaning. Well, watch this little clip from this interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And, and still think there's something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is... Maybe I think, God, there's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't... This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? What's the answer? I wish I knew. Wish I knew. I mean, it's. I think that's part of me trying to go out and experience other things. But there's a. I know. I love playing football, and I love being a quarterback for this team. And but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find, and different ways of expressing being around. I know what ultimately makes me happy are family and friends, and positive relationships with great people. And I think I get more out of that than anything. Tick, 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 tick. Is Pastor going to get out on time? Tick, 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 tick. Did he not put that just open and honest? The, the, a man that at 27 had everything that most guys would ever dream of, three Super Bowl rings at that age, and yet being interviewed, he says, he took the Lord's name in vain there. He wasn't calling out to God. He was just using that as a verbal pause and saying, there's got to be more than this. There's, there's got to be more to life because I've got this stuff now and I don't feel any different. It's really not made my life any better like I, I thought it would. I, I was encouraged to read many of the comments on this video that a number of believers were saying, listen, man, you need Christ. You need to know the Lord. You need salvation. And I read one comment that read, it says, some people are trying to make this about religion. I disagree. Nowadays, he has a completely different mindset, and he's very happy. Was it religion? No, he learned to not solely obsess on the uh, accolades. He learned to love the process. Now, that was a year ago. And if you know anything that's transpired in the last year in his life, he's gone through a divorce now, and it's like somebody posted a comment under that that said, uh, your post didn't age well. 
because, you know, I hate to laugh at it, but the irony is it's humorous. It's foolishness to think that in the things of this life, and even his desire of saying, ultimately, I find my greatest happiness in, in family and in friends, that's a good thing that we, would, that we would even commend, but ultimately, it's not the ultimate thing. And people and friends will not be able to satisfy you when there's a God-shaped hole in your life and an invitation from God Almighty to fill that God-shaped hole in your life. You're not going to find it in anything else that this world can offer. And so God says to us all, why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And why? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? And then he extends this beautiful invitation. Listen carefully, carefully to me, and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance, and prime your ear, and come to me here. And it says, and your soul shall live. You know what Tom Brady's problem is? His soul is dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins, and he's not going to find the solution to that in the next wife that he marries or in the next Super Bowl ring. He's already got four more after that third one, by the way. He, he, even if he gets another one, he's not, he's not going to find it in any of that stuff. Find it in God. Find it in Him alone. His salvation is what satisfies the longings of the human heart. It is a great invitation because it comes at no cost of our own, because it provides for us an eternal satisfaction. Notice thirdly in verse 6, it's an invitation also to know the Lord God, your Creator. The one true living God, Creator of all things, and the Creator even of you, and the intricacies and the uniqueness of who you are, that God, God is the one who formed and fashioned you and your your mother's womb. And there's a lot of views that people come up with on their own about this God. Is he, is he a personable God? Or is he just far off and removed and unconcerned about my life? Like maybe he just created everything and got it going and sort of stepped back and just lets it all happen and he's just unconcerned about you and unconcerned about me tonight. You read the Bible and what you find is no, absolutely not. God is a God who is desiring to know you and for you to know Him. Desiring that you you receive this invitation and find in Him true salvation. Verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. And that's implying that right now in this moment is a time that He can be found. That He's not a God who's far off and unconcerned and removed from your life. He's a God who's close and nearby. He's a God who's given us this Word and given us His Spirit and given you a church that you've come to and given you a preacher that's preaching this invitation to you, telling you God is nearby. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. That God is the Good Shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. That God is the woman of that story who searches for the lost coin and, and finds it. And, and when she does, she calls all of her friends and neighbors and, and they rejoice greatly that the coin has been found. That God is the father of the prodigal son. And when the child who ran off and squandered his inheritance and sinned to the utmost comes back and returns, what does the father do? He runs. He runs to welcome him back home. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 33 and verse 11 is a verse that has helped me understand the heart of God almost like no other verse in Scripture, honestly. You know, I know like God is love, and I know God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Those, those are great verses that speak of the love of God for, for His people. But there's still a part of me that also understands and knows God is wrath. God is just and holy, and He has a vengeance towards sinners. And there's a part of me even understanding biblically the righteousness of God and the indignation of God towards sinners that makes me wonder, does God take as much delight in the sinner being condemned to hell as He does in the sinner who, who is saved going to heaven? And there's these deep theological arguments even on all of this. And God is glorified and the sinner being condemned to hell. It is a, a revelation of His righteous holiness, and we fail to truly understand that. And many don't even speak of that because they hate that aspect of God. They truly don't understand the righteous holiness of God. But even those who, maybe you've been in church a while and you understand that aspect of the holiness of God, it, it can leave you in a tension of wondering, does God, does God receive greater glory in the sinner that has rebelled being condemned or in the sinner in repentance being redeemed. And, and we could wonder that and not know the answer to that if it weren't for his revelation about that that he gives to us even in this verse of Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 where God says to his people, Say to them as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? To, to realize tonight that God, God takes no pleasure in the condemnation of sinners. The Bible does say God is love. It does not say God is wrath. He has wrath towards sinners, but it says God is love. That the heart of God takes re pleasure in, rejoices when the sinner repents. That, that when one person turns from their wicked ways and turns from their sin and, and receives this invitation, God does not receive them begrudgingly and go, oh man, one more repented. No, God rejoices in it. As a father does when a child returns. And his heart delights in sinners repenting. He says, seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. If you're here tonight and you think, I can't turn to God, I can't receive this invitation, you don't know the things I've done, the places I've been, the person I am. You know, you're right, I don't, but I know the God who He is. And I know His heart for you, and I know this invitation that He gives to you even now, even tonight. Seek the Lord while He may be found, and call upon Him while He is near. There's a time where you will be standing there face to face before Him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but He will not be able to be found in that moment, and He will not be near in that moment. There will be a judgment unto eternal damnation where many who have rejected Him in this life will stand condemned before Him in His righteous wrath towards sinners. And God doesn't take pleasure in that moment in condemning the sinner. God extends an invitation to you right now, even tonight, to say, don't, don't get to that point. Repent while repentance may be found. God is near. 
seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, while you have opportunity. You're not guaranteed another. It's a great invitation, because this is an invitation to truly know the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God, your Creator. And notice lastly in verse 7, and we'll close after this, an invitation to repent and receive mercy. Verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Now, repentance is something that you don't hear a lot about in, in today's day and age, especially in American modern-day Christianity. Even where places where the gospel is, is for the most part rightly understood and rightly proclaimed, often repentance is a, a taboo sort of word. It's seldom spoken of and it's seldom uh, understood. That, that repentance is actually a part of this invitation. You say, what is repentance? It's defined very well in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. So, so, so the wicked and the unrighteous person, the one who is a sinner, as they hear this invitation, they, they will not hear it in, in arrogance and pride. The arrogant and the proud don't even hear this invitation. They're deaf to it because of their self-justice, their self-righteousness, their, their independence. It, it's the humble and the broken that this message is heard by. It's those who understand their sinfulness and their need of a Savior who hear this invitation. And the only way to respond to this invitation is to, to turn from. Repentance means a turning away from and a turning towards. To, to leave behind, to abandon the, the wrong ways, the ways of wickedness and the thoughts of unrighteousness. And turning from sin, you turn to the Savior. That's what this invitation is. And unfortunately, so many, because of this huge evangelistic push in American, even church history of, of, of hundreds and hundreds coming forward and receiving an invitation for salvation, it's been so centered on going to heaven that, that, that repentance has been kind of fell to the way, wayside. And, and so many come and they think they have received salvation in this invitation. And what they hear in it is, I've said this prayer or I got baptized. Now I keep doing all the things that I've done. I keep living the exact same way I was living before Christ. I just now have this little insurance card. I have this little ticket now that gets me into heaven. And they want to add Jesus to their sinful life. They want to add a little box for Christ, a little box for Christianity, by which now they think, I don't need to turn from my sin and my wicked ways and my unrighteous thinking. I can keep doing the same things I've always done. God is love. God is grace. I've, I've brought him into this nasty mess. I can keep on doing it, and I'm going to be okay in the end. He's going to forgive me and redeem me, and I'm saved. That is not salvation. That is not the biblical offer that God extends here. He doesn't say keep doing the same things you've always done, living the same way, as the way that you've always lived, thinking the same way that you've always thought. He says, no, if you're going to respond to this invitation, you will forsake those ways, and you will turn from the unrighteous thoughts, and you will, you will turn to the Lord. And that doesn't mean you'll live perfect, but it means you're, 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 you're receiving His grace. 
You're not earning your salvation in that repentance. Remember the price was paid. You're coming freely with no money to buy and eat and drink of this bread and of this milk and of this wine. It's not of your repentance that earns salvation, but it is through repentance that true faith is manifest. And if you don't have repentance with faith, James put it pretty clearly, you you show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And so if you're here tonight, and you're living a life filled with immorality, and you have no conviction over it, if you're living a life of any sort of sin, and you think you're just good doing that, and God's going to just forgive it and overlook it and turn away from it, You haven't responded rightly to this invitation that God has given. Because this invitation is an invitation to turn from your sin, to turn from your wicked ways, and to turn to the Lord. And what you find when you do that is that you don't need a God who who condemns you when you confess who you are to Him. God rightly should and could do that. But when we go to Him and say, God, I'm a sinner and I am unworthy, He could say, yes, you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, you worker of sin. He would be wholly just and right to do so, but that's, that's not what God does when we confess our sin before Him, when we repent, when we turn from that sin to, to the Savior. What does God do? And He will have mercy on Him. And the end of verse 7, and He will abundantly pardon. Not, not just pardon, but He will abundantly pardon. He, he will remove your sins as far as the east is from the west. He says He will remember them no more. Why? Because His Son paid for it all at Calvary. Because Jesus shed His blood for you. Why is this such a great invitation? Because it's an invitation to repent, to turn from our sin, and find, and find mercy, find grace, find salvation. We read this invitation and it leaves us sort of stepping back going, why would God do this? Why would God extend such a great salvation to such an unworthy people? Why would God offer an invitation to you? Why would God offer an invitation to me? Why would God give His one and only Son to die upon a a cross to endure that torment and affliction, not only of the physical suffering, but even of the separation from the Father, which is beyond my comprehension, the Son and the Father, the triune God, the Father pouring the wrath of of His righteous indignation towards sinners upon Christ while He's on the cross, where Jesus uttered those words of greatest suffering upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ knew the answer, as did the Father. He was forsaken because He took the place of sinners. He took your place and my place, and He died upon that cross for your sins, for my sins. Why Why would God do such a thing? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
you have been invited this evening, invited by the one true living God to turn from your sin, to come to Him and to find a pardon, to find forgiveness, to find redemption, to find salvation, to find the only thing in this life that can truly fill the void in life, that can truly satisfy, that can truly give eternal question is tonight, will you respond to that invitation? I know many of you have. And the application for us is that there's a danger the longer that we are in a place, the more we feel we are deserving of that place. It kind of gets commonplace, right? Because we've been here for a while. And the more that you're sitting and eating at that table of His grace, the more you can believe wrongly that you deserve that seat at the table and that you purchased it. So there's an application to all of us who are saved to be reminded we are the unworthy worm that the hymn speaks of. For such a worm as I, we don't deserve what we've been graciously given in this invitation. And then there's a greater application for any and all who are here who don't know Jesus never responded to this invitation. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. We're going to close in prayer. Pastor Scott's going to come and close with a song and invitation. And I beg you, if you've never responded to this great invitation that God gives, find in Him what only can be found in Him. The way in which your dead soul can become alive Turn to Him, repent, and believe upon Christ as Lord and as Savior tonight. Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray, Lord, You would work at this moment of Your grace, of Your mercy through Your Spirit. Lord, salvation isn't anything I can accomplish. It's not in my life, not in the life of another. Lord, salvation is already been accomplished the only way it could be through Jesus dying upon that cross, being buried and raised again. Lord, I know there's many in this room who have had a time in their life where they came to see Jesus for who He is, the Savior of the world, and they came to see themselves for who they are, and they they recognized their sin, they confessed it, they turned to You and believed upon Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank You for our salvation. Thank You for Your grace and mercy. Help us to never get over it. Help us to always be amazed by it. Lord, I know there are some here tonight who have never responded to this great invitation. So Lord, I pray even now that they would as they have heard it from Your Word. Lord, Your Word to them tonight. Come and find salvation. Come and find an abundant pardon. Just repent and believe. Lord, work, I pray. Draw them to Christ. Save, I pray, this evening. I ask it in Jesus' precious, holy name.